0: following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible study for men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. A young pastor who was a little frustrated because the roof on the church needed to be replaced and it cost quite a bit of money so he had never done anything about a fundraiser before in his very young short career. So he was very nervous about it but decided that he'd go ahead and preach a sermon and work on a presentation to convince the people it's something that they could all do together. So even though the uh, the figure was rather high for any one person if you divided among the people, uh, it could be very doable even though people still had to be very generous with their contribution. So he worked on his sermon and was was fine with that, but was really nervous about asking the people for money since this was his first go. but he uh, wrote it all out and figured that that was a very objective presentation, and he would just go for it and see what would happen that Sunday morning. He got a terrible phone call, and that was that his organist was home with the flu, so she said that don't worry, i've got a very good substitute; she doesn't never been to our church, but she's very good, so he just asked her to play anything, and she's very competent." And of course, uh, anything new and different like that in a plan gets someone like the pastor very nervous. So he says, okay, okay, well, I hope you feel better and hung up and got to the church and greeted the substitute organist. And he was very nervous about the whole thing. So he wasn't very hospitable and says, look, at I've, I'm really not quite myself today. I've got this sermon. I got to ask for this money. Here's the order of service. Play these songs. And when I ask the congregation for the money, I don't know what is appropriate to play, but you figure out something to play right after I asked the people, and she nodded and smiled, no problem. So he preached the sermon, and the sermon went fine, but you could tell toward the end he was a little distracted. He, he stayed there in front of the congregation, explained to them the problem of the, the fix of the roof and needing a brand new roof. It's going to cost a lot of money. He told him how much it was going to cost. He says, I know that sounds like a lot of money, but if we all participate in this together, we can get it done. So I, I would just really like you to think very carefully and just ask you if, If you can give $100 to this great cause, I'd love it if you would stand. And so at that point, he turned and nodded to the substitute organist who promptly began to play the Star Spangled Banner. (laughs) I I don't know how you deal with people as a group when they've already got a fixation in their mind about something that they will not break loose from and change their minds about it. But there are ways. And one of the things is besides just the money thing, which all of us guys understand, there's, there's something else that gets a fixation in the minds of people that alters everything in which they interpret how life goes. And that's the issue of death. Every one of us here, if we were to project onto the screen what it is about our lives as a representation of the things that we hope to accomplish those things that we're just saying, if we can just get this done, if I can just accomplish these things, life will be really great. If I can do this, and I can accomplish this, and I can influence that, if I could put the five or six things down on a screen that says, these are the things I'm really trying to pursue. And all of a sudden, say, oh, I understand your plan. Now, what would happen to the person that you love the most? Came right up to you right at this moment and says, hey, I've got some bad news. I just got to Call from the doctor, and I've got terminal cancer, and I've only got six months left to live. What would that do to your plans? Most of us, as guys, we've thought about that occasionally, but really, when we're in pursuit of trying to accomplish the goals that we have in our mind, we don't really factor in the idea that the person that we love the most would die. It's just not there. So how in the world would you change your mentality or your perspective about life with regard to death in relationship to all the things you want to try and accomplish? The fear that would come, the panic that would come, suddenly the devaluation of the things that we are pursuing is no longer there. Well, we have a remarkable situation here from Mark chapter 8 and 9, which is a great perspective because Mark chapter 8 lays the foundation for Mark 9. And the the promise that Jesus Christ made is based upon a horrible time of tremendous fear. Because the disciples are in a time of training, Jesus Christ is trying to input and infuse into their life these amazing lessons about faith. How you as a man, representing me, can live a life successfully through faith. Now this kind of life of faith is somehow eluding the understanding of the disciples. They're thinking one thing and Jesus Christ is teaching another and they're not getting it. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ says, look at, what who do, you, who, do, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, they say all these other amazing things. None of them are, are accurate. They're all spiritual. And then Jesus Christ looks at them and then points out Peter and says, well, who do you say that I am? Let's forget about the popular opinion, because they're off base. They're inaccurate. They're not right. Who, Peter, do you say I am? Peter gives that great confession, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is an accurate statement. And Jesus Christ is incredibly pleased with that response. But he says to Peter and all the disciples, don't tell anyone about this. We're a little confused about all that. So then Jesus Christ, knowing, however, that he's got the world at bay, especially the leadership of the nation of Israel, because they've rejected the idea that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah. They have not accepted it. We know that because they credit all of his power to Satan, all of his teaching wisdom to Satan. This comes from the devil, the pit of hell, not from the heart of God or from the belief that we have in the Almighty. So we know that they've already rejected Jesus as Messiah in their heart. So Christ, before they allow them to act on their unbelief, he holds them at bay. And now he gathers the disciples to teach them about how to live a life of faith. Because Christ knows that when he's gone... When the religious leadership have their way with him and take his life, they will now represent Christ on this earth with this great message of the good news. So he's trying to teach them up as fast as he can before he allows the religious leadership to take his life. So at this particular juncture, you have this tremendous dichotomy, a tremendous separation of the unbelief of the leaders of the nation of Israel, and now this incredible faith that disciples have. And so, Jesus Christ is going to teach his disciples about what is to come in light of their lessons on faith. And he tells them, I must suffer many things and then I must die. Now, the death of the one that they love, Jesus, totally throws them into chaos. In their minds, they're thinking to themselves, How on earth can this possibly be? What do we do? How do we handle this? This is crazy. You're expecting Jesus, whom we would believe is the Messiah, the one who's going to come and bring this kingdom that was promised to David and Abraham for so many generations, and we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And now he's telling us that he must die. That's what it's like to put your life and ambitions on the screen with all your plans and suddenly say, well, what would happen if the most important person in your life suddenly tells you they're going to die? And how does that change your plans? That's what the disciples are facing. Jesus Christ, knowing that their fear of death and the fear of His death is suddenly putting them into a chaotic panic, Jesus Christ makes a special promise to these disciples in chapter one, verse uh, uh, verse one of chapter nine of the Gospel of Mark. So, in light of that context, Jesus Christ says to them in verse one of chapter nine, and He said to them, "I tell you the truth." Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. You see what Jesus is doing? He says, all those dreams you had, all those plans you had up on the screen, don't worry about it. They're going to come to fruition. Don't let my death frighten you from those dreams because they are in fact the foundation by which those dreams are going to become a reality. Your hope, with regard to the kingdom for the nation of Israel, is going to be founded upon the reality of my death. Don't worry. And I promise you that the kingdom to come, some of you will get a glimpse of that before you die. That is Jesus Christ's promise. Now when I look at this passage of Scripture, it's really about this promise that he gives. And you probably remember in your lifetime that these are incredible promises that people have given to you that you've given to others. And as important as promises to you have been, the promises that you've given your children, your spouse, your friend, your coworkers, those have been fundamental to anticipation and expectation by others. But we also know that in this life, with all of our frailties, some promises are broken. Some of the things that we have said, some of the things that we have assured others of, We haven't been able to do those. In fact, sometimes we've even backed out. But it's been incredibly painful when others have backed out on us. When our dreams, our hopes, our anticipations, based upon what someone else has said, they back out and suddenly promises are broken. What's even worse is when we find out that broken promises had never, never had the intention of being fulfilled. Someone was telling us a lie. Someone was feeding us a line in order to get us to the position of having a hope placed somewhere that would never ever come true because they had no intention of giving to us what we desired in order for us to fulfill a bargaining chip for them. And we know what it's like for other people and us also what it feels like to be betrayed on a promise, to have hopes dashed, to have dreams canceled, and the brokenness inside that we feel. Jesus Christ is doing an incredible story for us here about people who are thinking, man, oh man, my dreams, my hopes are all based upon the promises that my fathers and my father's fathers and my father's father's fathers taught me through all the generations. That the nation of Israel was going to be blessed. That we were going to be given a Messiah who would be the King of Kings and bring our nation to the prominence that God described in His Word. I had all my hopes in this person, Jesus. Now all of a sudden, Jesus Christ is telling us he's going to die. How in the world can his death help us look forward to this dream? Well, Jesus Christ says, hey, just because we've got something that you weren't planning and involved with the scheme doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. So the transfiguration, if you've never been able to figure it out, it is an assurance that the promises that God has made in the past will still be fulfilled in the future. And as closely as we are involved in a relationship with Jesus Christ, His death is not the nullification of the promises of the ages. And God is going to give the, na- the nation of Israel through these disciples a glimpse of this promise of the kingdom. So when they see it, all of their fear and all of the panic that they had about the death of Jesus Christ is going to be alleviated. This promise here in one, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death until before they see the kingdom of God. That is an incredible promise. So if theologically, you've been sort of feeling uncomfortable with where the transfiguration is or how to explain it. Put it in that context. It's not the episode itself, but it's in the context of chapter 8 all the way through chapter 9 and understanding this bifurcation of Jesus Christ is now keeping the leadership at bay while he's teaching his disciples how to live by faith even when they face the death of the one who is most important to them. Well, some people look at the uh, Transfiguration and there's tons of things written on it. In fact, if you ever want to write a book and get it published, write it on the Transfiguration. Because there's so many views out there that they publish the craziest things that no matter what you write, I'm, I'm pretty sure someone will probably want to say, hey, that's, a, that's something I never thought of before. Let's publish that. So this is what it is not. It is not a reference to the kingdom actually starting, even though that's what the disciples wished it would happen. It is not a prediction of the resurrection or the ascension of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> not that at all. <clears throat> a lot of times Christians like to look back into history and implant all the hopes that we have in the church back in the history when Jesus Christ was teaching his disciples. It doesn't work that way. It's not either a reference to Pentecost. Some people, again, get back into this whole business of the church beginning. That's a very important historical event, very important to us as Christians, very important to the beginning of the church. But that's not what the Transfiguration was all about. It wasn't the anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem either. I mean, all these things are wonderful thoughts, but none of them match with what happened at the Transfiguration. But we can tell that at the Transfiguration, when we have this amazing presentation... Uh, These are some of the things that we can know for sure. So this is what the Scripture says. In verse 2 of chapter 9, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and went with them and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. That's why they call it transfiguration. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone could ever bleach them. Now that's amazing because... Jesus was actually wearing real tree camouflage, and it all got bleached white. That's pretty amazing transformation. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now these disciples, they recognized Moses. No one ever thinks, well, how do they do that? There's no picture of them. They didn't have a video of the guy, but somehow they knew who Moses and Elijah were. To me, that's a minor miracle. But they recognized them immediately, even without any consultation. Peter said to Jesus, now this is amazing. Listen to Peter here. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. This is absolutely spectacular. Let us put up three shelters, three little tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It sounds great. Until we get the parenthetical commentary from Almighty God. He did not know what to say. He is absolutely clueless of what was going on. They were they and his, He and his two buddies, they were so scared. This is what you do if you're Peter. When you're scared and you don't know what's going on, talk. The rest of us who have some sense, if we're scared and are confused, we shut up. But Peter here is demonstrating his amazing prowess to speak. Then in verse 7, a cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud. This is God, by the way, the Father. He's speaking. He doesn't even have to be introduced. Peter has to be identified with what he said, but the father just speaks. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. That's all it says. Doesn't give any new revelation from the standpoint of what's going to happen, what has happened, or what this particular episode is. Does not. But the father points to his son and says, listen to him. He will explain it. His words. Are important. What Peter said, he's out the line. So don't even listen to him. Listen to my son. Suddenly, in verse 8, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. Now, I don't know how many times you could get in your Bible and circle that when Jesus said, Don't tell anyone. It's one of the most confusing parts of the New Testament, even to seminary graduates. And in a very secret poll taken among preachers and pastors, one of the things that pastors do not like to preach from is are the Gospels. Because they can't figure out the bigger context of why in the world Jesus says, Don't tell anyone. "Don't no, tell everyone. Don't tell anyone. Now tell everyone. Well, what we have learned here at Warrior's Heart about how to handle the book of Mark, you know more with greater confidence in why Christ says don't tell anyone or why he should tell everyone than many pastors who are out there in pulpits today who will not preach through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, because they can't figure it out. So here Jesus Christ is simply saying, Don't tell anyone what they have what you what they have seen when until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He's putting into context their fear of the death of Jesus their anticipation of the kingdom, and what in the world his death and the kingdom all have together anyway. Because they had already, the spiritual leadership of Israel, had rejected Jesus as Messiah. Jesus Christ is doing a gracious thing for them. He's not teaching them more truth because they'll just reject it. And it gives us a very strong indication that when we are judged before God, it is based upon the degree of our rejection of information he's given to us, And the more that we reject, the more severe the judgment. And since the religious leadership of the nation of Israel had already rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah, Christ was not going to give them any more information to reject because the severity of their judgment would simply increase. That is a slight of hand representation of Jesus Christ's grace to those who have rejected Him. So He tells His disciples, Don't tell anybody what you saw, but this is the way it's going to be. Don't tell them until the resurrection. Once the resurrection happens, all limitations are off. And we get to join in on that great joy of telling others about the good news of the resurrection and what this all means with Jesus and issues of the future. It's absolutely spectacular when it all unfolds. The transfiguration, it is a confirmation. If you could just remember those two words, transfiguration, Confirmation. And the confirmation is that the kingdom is a future reality. The promises that God made to David, the promises that God made to Abraham for the nation of Israel, those promises will still be fulfilled. I know it's a popular notion that many times Christian leaders and theologians will write books and give sermons and give lectures and saying, well, Israel was disobedient. And because of her disobedience, God took away the promises that he given the nation of Israel. And he's going to spiritually Fulfill those by giving those blessings to the Gentiles, the Goyim, all of us here who are not Jewish. And the church is going to be the blessing of the promises that God had promised David and Abraham. Not true. At least I don't think it's true. I don't think the Bible says it's true either. Because in the book of the Revelation, God promises them when the kingdom is established, He will give the nation of Israel... Not spiritual hope or spiritual blessing or saying, hey, you missed out, but thank God for your Gentile brothers and sisters who enjoyed all those blessings before you. God doesn't say that. He gives them dirt. He gives them real estate. And he promises and he delivers on what he has said to the nation of Israel. Next week, uh, I won't be teaching, but we're going to have two of uh, the individuals who are in the Israeli Defense Force who are going to be here as guests and to tell you their story of why they love their country and why they fight for their their people. And one of the things that we as Christians realize because of what we read in the Bible is we're not here to politically support the, the the political system of Israel. We are not. But we love the people of Israel because they are the people of God. But even the people of God could have leaders up there who are saying some things and trying to remove the country into place or or different parties in that country are doing things that are really in opposition to the will of God. And we don't support that just because they're Israel. But boy, when the people of Israel, the people of God, that God has a hand of blessing and a thumbprint on them, if they have something in their life going on, man, we want to cheer them on as best we can. And, and I can almost guarantee you that at least one, if not both of these guys from the IDF who will be here next week, may not know Jesus. But they are mesmerized that America gives them so much support. So they travel around the country and they, they get a chance to share their story with Christian groups. And maybe one of the best things that can happen next week is not what they say to us, but what we can say and pray for them as we push Jesus into their life. And maybe let them sense that we love them because they are the people of God, not politically, not ideologically, but simply theologically. That we are blessed as Gentiles because of what God did to you and your ancestors long ago that we are going to be blessed from. And let's show them what the love of Christ means in a nation that they are far from. When they are a little country fighting for their lives, maybe not doing it for the right theological reasons, but theologically there is a premise of their connection with Almighty God that we can be a link of. So come, bring your friends. It will be an amazing... Very frank so we have a confirmation that Jesus is Messiah his transformation the conversion with re- conversation with these two guys Elijah and Moses these are all intricacies that are related to the kingdom that God has promised amazing And at the very end here is a key idea from the transfiguration that this is a way to get over the way in which death somehow has taken away the hope Of all these individuals. When death comes, we who are people of faith can categorize it in such a way that all that we hope to do has death in the plans. There were once three girls who were thrilled when they got married and also thrilled when they both, all three of them, found out they were pregnant. So they had a lot of fun going out together and having little female lunches where they have the little food, the little beverages. If they really don't go out to eat, they go out to talk, and the food is just an excuse for them to talk. Guides would look at that and think, man I, if I ate all that these three girls had ordered, I'd still be hungry <laughs> So they did all these things they went shopping and had a wonderful time anticipating these children being born and It was really exciting and Then two weeks before or two months before the the due date for these girls, one of the girls uh had a horrible physiological reaction to her pregnancy and they had to go to emergency. They rushed them up to the neonatal center in uh, Portland, Oregon, and and I got a call at three o'clock in the morning because my wife was one of the three anticipating our first child, and Ellen was the one who was up in the hospital, and I was her pastor, and so I rushed up to the hospital. I'd never been in the neonatal center before, and it's amazing the security for against germs and the people who come in. But it's, as soon as I told them I'm the pastor. They just gave me the royal treatment, rolled out the red carpet, let me come in, uh, scrubbed me down two times, went through several security doors, went into this place that was just filled with amazing equipment. And I I saw my friends who were part of the church over there, and I rushed over. And uh, the baby had been born, but the baby had all sorts of problems. It's a little preemie. And when it was born, it didn't have a thumb on the left hand. But that was only the beginning of the first thing I saw, and On the inside of this little life, there was no connection between the throat and the stomach. So a lot of things just were not formed well, and the baby itself was struggling and high fever. And all of a sudden, the baby started to grimace, and the whole body tightened up. And the doctors and the nurses rushed over, and they they did all that they could. And I said, what's going on? And the doctor turned to me and says, the baby just had another massive stroke, hemorrhaging in the brain. It's the third one that's happened since it's been born. So the alarms were all going off and it was just the craziest moment. And they'd been there now for hours. She was exhausted because she had just delivered that earlier that evening. And now they've been with the baby for hours upon hours and wee hours of the morning. And we sat there for the longest time. We prayed and we just asked God to show his mercy. And we told him we didn't know what to do and depend upon no one but him. And the young mother was just crying her eyes out. And the father was standing there like a zombie. He was just total shock and, Finally, the doctor looked at the mother and the father and said, We've done all we could. And this little life that you love so much, he's done all he could. But he can't live on these machines forever. I think it's time to turn them off to see if he was meant to live. I still remember those words. That was almost 30 years ago. I was a young pastor. I looked up at the, pastor, or the doctor and the doctor looked out at me and he looked at the mother and the father and they were holding each other's hands, just sobbing away and just nodded their heads. The doctor stood with us, turned off all the machines. And for one last time, that little baby had another massive stroke. And then all the machines went flat. I don't know how long we were there, seemed like a long time, and it seemed like a short time. And the doctor asked me, could you take the parents maybe over to the cafeteria and, and relax a little bit, and we'll take care of everything here. So I helped them both out, and we sat down in the cafeteria. I don't know what we ate or what we drank. And we prayed. And I remember the mother looking up at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, Pastor Bruce, why us? We had all these wonderful dreams. We had all these wonderful plans. I said, I can never explain to you, Ellen, why God brings trials to some and not to others. I do know that he cares for us deeply when trials come our way. And death is one of the greatest trials of all. And she looked at me and says, Pastor Bruce, my faith isn't this strong. You're a pastor. Why couldn't this happen to you instead? You're stronger than I am. Your faith is greater. And I think the first time in that moment, I think I had a tear in my eye. I thought to myself, you're giving me far much too credit. I don't know what my plans would be like if suddenly God took my firstborn child like he's taken yours. But somehow I know from looking at the scripture that death, if it has that much power over any of us, that if the most Loved person in our life is suddenly taken in death. If all of our life is suddenly destroyed, then somewhere along the line, maybe this passage in Mark chapter 9 could give us some hope, give us some direction. That if we love Jesus more than anybody else, and we trust him for the plans of our life and the lives that we love, we haven't lost the most important person that we love. And if Jesus Christ can take an entire nation multiplied by many generations and saying that him as the Messiah, the promised King of Kings, if his death could disrupt the hope of all the people that have in this kingdom, and he could say, no, it doesn't destroy it. It guarantees its reality. That to me is a kind of lesson of hope that he promises us here in Mark chapter 9. That's our lesson for today, guys. Jesus Christ is our hope, no matter what life threatens us with, even with the death of those who are closest that we love the most. That is an amazing lesson to bring to every single person at your workplace, because all of them will lose someone in death, even though their plans don't include that scenario. That's the kind of faith we can bring and hope we can share with those around us. Have a great table talk, guys. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details... And to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.